0: Hello. Uh, just me here. Andrew is on vacation this week. And so we thought we'd try a, uh, a little something different. Um, we uh, sort of floated this idea around about doing little mini episodes for albums that we felt that we could talk at length about. More so than what is offered in the regular format of the show. So, Andrew and I decided that, uh, you know, when we can, we would do sort of one-off episodes that are just talking about albums that we really like and that we want to talk about a lot. And I figured since Andrew is on vacation this week, this would be a perfect opportunity for me to try one out. So, hopefully uh, you like it. Hopefully it works. Um, Yeah, so I think this, this week I will be reviewing... Uh, Frank Zappa and the Mother's uh, 1974 album, Roxy and Elsewhere. I figured I'd come out of the gate swinging um, because, for better or for worse, I think that this album is my favorite album of all time. I, I, I think I decided that a long time ago and as f- I've, I've stuck by it. So I'm going to be discussing uh, Roxy and Elsewhere with you and hopefully you enjoy it. For a little context, I discovered Frank Zappa around, I want to say, uh, the age of 15 or 16. Um, w- the first time I ever heard anything by Frank, it was actually something that my dad had played for me. And it was it, w- it was fine what it was, but I think I got the wrong first impression. Um because if, if you look at what Frank Zappa put out from strictly a singles and top charts perspective, you could get the impression that Frank was something of a novelty artist, like a 1970s weird Al, if you will. Uh, so my dad played me stuff like Don't Eat the Yellow Snow or Dynamo Hum or Bobby Brown or Broken Hearts are for Assholes. So the, these sort of comedy songs and that, that was my first impression of Frank was like, oh, he's this guy who writes wacky, funny music, and he's got this funny mustache and long hair, and that's that's what he does. And it wasn't until um, I burned a copy of Strictly Commercial, which is a best-of compilation that was put out, I want to say, in the late 90s. And the, the songs on that, I feel like, were more encompassing of the works that Frank put out in his lifetime and I think that's what really drew me in. Uh, the first track on Strictly Commercial is um, a, a jazz instrumental called Peaches and Regalia. And I think that was the song that made me want to look deeper into what this man had put out in his lifetime. And I, I I, was hooked from that song. And I immediately started collecting everything I could find. Like, I, I, w- I scoured everywhere. I went to, like secondhand stores record shows I wanted to collect as much of this guy's music as I could and one day I came across Roxy and elsewhere and I I didn't know what it was I just saw that it had Frank Zappa and the mothers and yeah I picked it up and I listened to it and honestly trying to remember back I don't remember my first impressions at all Uh, There's a couple songs on it that are reinterpretations of other songs that he's put out. Uh, I think Trouble Every Day is one of the songs on there that there's like a different version of. So I I actually, I didn't know any of the songs. I just kind of went into it blind. And I honestly don't remember my first impressions, but I listened to it a ton. And over time, it grew on me. And it's, uh, it's one of those albums where even like... 10, 12, 13 years later, I can I can listen to it for the first time in a long time and I can still recite every single lyric or even stage interaction because Roxy and elsewhere is a live album. I could I can remember all of that stuff. That's how much of an impact it's had on me. So from here, I'm going to try and do, some sort of combination of a track by track analysis while also giving a little bit of context about frank's band at the time the musicians on the album and sort of what was going on in his life as this album came out so i think from there i'm just going to segue right into the first song uh penguin and bondage which is a ludicrous name for a song but here's a little sample, and then uh, yeah, I'll be right back to talk to you about it. just like a penguin in bondage, boy. Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah. yeah! Way over on the website of the day. <laughs> Knurps for moisture. Like the mighty penguin, mm-hmm. flapper it on wings The penguin fling. Lord you know it's all over. If she come at you on the strut, wrap all around your head. Flapper it on swings flap. So I played uh the intro of the song, but what I left out was the part where uh Frank was addressing the audience. And in that address, he let them know that they were filming the concert that was about to take place. Uh, The the Roxy and elsewhere album takes place largely at the Roxy Theater in California. I believe it was like December 11th, 12th, and 13th in 1973 or 4. And this is important because this concert was filmed in its entirety. All three nights were. And there was an issue many, many years later in converting the film to a viewable state, which left uh, the status of the, the concert film kind of up in the air for a long time. And uh, as I may have alluded before, in fact, actually, I don't think I did at all. Uh, Roxy and Elsewhere is pretty heavily lauded as, like, the high watermark for Frank's bands, uh, especially in the 70s era. Like, this album is considered one of probably the best um, representations of the lineup that he had and so the song starts with frank talking to the audience and he gives a little bit of a preamble to what the song is about but what, what's striking about it is that frank goes to uh, kind of weird uh angles to be vague about it even though the song is i guess sexually explicit in nature and i think What's going on is Frank is realizing that they're filming this. And I think at the time, uh, I think FCC and censorship laws were a little more strict. And Frank has a bit of a history with that. Um, when he first started out uh, in the 60s, he built a home studio in California. And was basically experimenting at the time with, you know, four track recorders and eight track recorders. Whatever the technology at the time was, Frank was experimenting with it. And he recorded anything or anybody to get by. And the story goes, someone came by and basically wanted to make a pornographic record. And so Frank and a female friend of his at the time faked a porno record and it was basically them jumping up and down on the couch and just making you know obscene noises but it, it was silly and after this happened it had turned out that it was a police sting and they got frank on a conspiracy to commit pornography charge it was some ludicrous charge and what happened was Frank's studio was raided and torn down, and Frank spent some time in jail. And I don't think he ever really recovered those tapes. So since then, uh, Frank has had a distrust of, I mean, really the government and the police. And it, in other instances, like throughout his career, he he's made this pretty pretty clear that this is how he feels about it. So it's not super surprising that at the beginning of the song, he's being vague about sexual acts, but the song itself is uh, it's sort of a slow groovy rock tune. Um, it really highlights the uh, musical dexterity of the band. There's lots of horn lines. There's lots of like interesting stuff, intricate parts going on. Um, the lineup, I believe for 1974, it was Frank on guitar uh, Ruth Underwood was playing marimba uh, He had two drummers Actually um, Bass player, trombone Keys, bass guitar He had a pretty full stacked lineup Interesting to note the uh, the late Great George Duke is playing keys on this Album and providing vocals On many of the songs and uh, Napoleon Murphy Brock who is uh, Taking on the role of lead vocals And saxophone and Later on Jazz flute So that kind of sums it up for Penguin and Bondage. Um, The next song on the album is seamlessly transitioned into, and it is a mostly instrumental song called Pygmy Twilight. And here is that. listen to that song and in a way it kind of sounds like nonsense uh i've i've read some theories that it was pretty much there just to uh make napoleon murphy brock squirm a little bit and make him like sing at his full register and sing complete nonsense which frank liked to do he i mean to him that was fun that was like something that he uh, enjoyed doing was pushing his band to you know basically the limits of their uh, musical ability but I think if you look at the lyrics a little bit more I think it it talks about uh, drug use and Frank is pretty staunchly against that uh, to him he smoked cigarettes and that was as far as it went um, he's gone on record saying that he like smoked marijuana maybe 10 times entirely in his life and never really it didn't do anything for him. He didn't drink alcohol. It was mostly just cigarettes. And so Frank had a pretty, uh, rigid rule with his bands that if you wanted to tour with him and you wanted to play with him, that you were clean. And there's plenty of references in pygmy twilight to, uh, quaalude moonlight, uh, crystal. Eye got a crystal kidney and he's afraid to die. Stuff like that. So it's kind of hard to interpret really what's going on because a lot of the lyrics are fairly bizarre. And the main feature seems to be on the band and their instrumental capacity. So that's Pygmy Twilight for you, a bizarro sort of song about drugs that's also exhausting to sing. Uh, Pygmy Twilight transitions into a track called Dummy Up, which is mostly featured on the album as sort of like a stand-up routine. Uh, there's like there's a bass guitar that's playing throughout. There's the instruments play with each other a little bit. There's a constant drum beat. The bass is doing the same repeated like sort of riff over and over again. Uh, George Duke is like hitting the keys and sort of improvising with the band as a few of the members are talking of they're having this conversation and. I think this is one of the moments in the album that kind of struck me especially at that like adolescent like 15 16 year old self because they talk uh, a lot of shit about college and at the time for me this really resonated with me cuz he's there's a, there's like one line where he's like you know he he smokes his degree and it's like yeah it's just a piece of paper and Stuff like that, and I think, you know, obviously I don't think I, I feel that way about it anymore, but at the time, I was like, yeah, you know, stick it to the man, and I, I thought it was, I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard, and so Dummy Up, it's it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a stand-up routine, essentially, just jokes between cast members in the band, and I think during live dates, they kind of made it up on the fly and changed the conversation around, so... And, and I think this kind of gets at why I love this album so much. And that is because it is all encompassing of what I feel like is, is Frank's body of work. There's funk. There's like sort of disco songs. There's wild instrumentation that, that are playing dizzyingly complicated rhythms and there's humor and there there's Frank's personality just all over it. And there's guitar solos, which honestly is mostly what Frank did with uh, his bands and what he did live. Um, So I'll play, I'll play a little bit of dummy up. Maybe I'll find a good part of uh, this conversation about college and smoking the degree. And all of you, uh, you know, rebellious teenagers out there can get real jazzed about some people in the seventies talking about how much college sucks. So here's a little bit of dummy up. No, San Jose. The evil dope pusher is cutting up a white gym sock, formerly owned by Carl Zappa and still damn. The shredded sock will be placed inside of a high school diploma and ignited with a sulfur preparation. His first taste of big city life. That's okay. Wait a minute. Hey, up. the roach of this is really gonna be good, so I'll sing. Have mercy. Ah, I was wrong. It was a it was a high school diploma, but I, I think the the message still stands. Uh, following dummy up is a personal song of frank's which is fairly rare i think uh it's a song called village of the sun and the song is about where frank grew up and some of the memories that he had as a child and uh he talks about growing up um in palmdale california and the song is basically about this place that uh he used to go to where they raised turkeys and uh, that's basically what the song is about. Uh, it's unconventional for Frank in so far that it's kind of a st- standard pop tune. There's not a lot of musical flourishes that go on. I think the chords are probably complicated and the chord progression is a little strange. But yeah, I think this is the closest that Frank really gets to like a personal song. And it is also a pop tune. So I'll play a little bit of Village of the Sun and then uh, we can get to the real meat and potatoes of the album. Following Village of the Sun is an instrumental track called Echidna's Arf, parentheses, of you. And I don't know what that means at all. But I think a lot of the time when they perform these songs live, I think these two went back to back. And it's kind of funny because it goes from one of Frank's more easily accessible pop tunes into quite possibly the most technically challenging song on the album. There's no lyrics at all. It's all instrumental, but it's... It's classic Frank in that it's changing time signatures like Wild. Uh, There's solos going on. And it's just, you listen to it and it's just dense. It's obviously hard to play. And I know that when Frank got his bands together, you had to audition for him. And then leading up to tours, he treated it like a full-time job. Like if you were going to rehearse with Frank's band, it was like, okay, well, you're going to be rehearsing eight hours a day, Monday through Friday before we go on tour because this stuff is hard and if you're not ready for it, you're gonna look silly out there. So here's a little taste of Echidna Zarf of you. Yeah. Almost as if to turn the dial up a notch, the song that follows *A Echidna's ARF is a nine-minute long, basically band feature piece called Don't You Ever Wash That Thing. And this song is, again, very, very complicated musically, and it features solos from the whole band. Uh, there's like a drum breakdown, George Duke plays a keyboard solo, it ends with uh, Frank doing a guitar solo, but I think my favorite part is uh, Bruce Fowler, who plays trombone. He he takes a solo, and around the time that I discovered this album, I was a trombone player in high school. And I I didn't really think much of the instrument. You know, I, I felt like it was just sort of given to me, and that was just sort of what I was stuck doing. Like, oh, well, your, your mouth fits on this mouthpiece, so this is just what you do now. And hearing a trombone player in a rock band context doing something really really cool was like huge for me so i think i think i'll play part of bruce fowler's trombone solo from uh, don't you ever watch that thing I first heard that song i don't even think i it registered in my mind that that was a sound that a trombone could make like i figured it was a trumpet player but no that's bruce is playing in a register that i can only imagine turns his face tomato red uh so following don't you ever watch that thing we take a hard left turn to a song called cheapness which is frank's homage to b movies Uh, I think Frank was a big fan of like some of the, the campy 1950s uh, like plan nine from outer space. Like he loved bad monster movies. And that's what the song is a tribute to. He starts out um, talking about a movie called it conquered the world. And he's, he's talking about some of the uh, common, I guess you could say (laughs) errors in those types of movies like you you know like a visible boom mic stand a guy in a silly outfit pretending to you know wreak havoc on a city that, that that's what frank's talking about these earnest attempts at just making a monster movie and it just not being very good at all so lyrically that's what cheapness is about napoleon murphy brock takes the helm with the song and frank has him singing about a giant poodle that is the uh, the primary monster that is destroying the city. And the poodle is named Frunabulax, which Frank references throughout his work. Uh, Frank had this thing called conceptual continuity. And to Frank, all of his albums were sort of like one big piece. That was his outlook on it. There would be references to other songs, other characters, other people that he made up in these songs. And throughout his nearly 50-year music career, that was what he did. So here's Cheapness, Frank's tribute to 1950s schlock. Ladies and gentlemen. The monster which the peasants in this area call through Nobulax, apparently a very large poodle dog, has just been seen approaching the power plant. Bullets can't stop it. Rockets can't stop it. We may have to use nuclear force. Rounding out the album are two songs that are incidentally not live performances from the Roxy Theater. Uh, It is Son of Orange County and More Trouble Every Day, both of which were recorded in Pennsylvania in 1974. Um, First is Son of Orange County, which is actually an homage to a previous song uh, made by Frank from the album Lumpy Gravy, which came out in 1967. The lyrics of Son of Orange County are a variation of the song Oh No." Which is a direct response to the Beatles, All You Need Is Love, wherein Oh No talks about how you would be foolish to think that love can solve all of the complicated problems that are going on in the world. A product of its time, there's a reference to Richard Nixon and uh, his impeachment in the song where uh, during the lyrics as Napoleon Murphy Brock is singing, Frank interjects with I am not a crook. And upon further investigation, I found out that Richard Nixon was born in Yorba Linda, Orange County, California. So the direct reference, it's a—it's uh, pretty apparent. So musically, the song starts out with the uh, down-tempo version of Oh No, and then goes into a, I'll call, blistering guitar solo from Frank. When I first found this album and listened to it, this is one of those guitar solos that really hooked me on Frank's guitar work. It's frenetic and it's electrifying, but it's also unconventional. He's not a conventional guitar player in the sense that like, he learned a bunch of jazz scales or he learned pr- the proper way to do it. He just learned his own way, and his his views on guitar solos in general is interesting because he sees them each as like individual compositions and it's like to him it's composing on the fly and i think in his book he described his playing style as a spider that's getting into a fight with an angry bird so it's very uh kind of polyrhythmic it's uh it's hard to describe so with that i will play you uh, a sample of son of orange county The penultimate song on the album more trouble every day is actually a revamped version of the uh, mothers of invention song trouble every day from frank's first album freak out which debuted in 1966. lyrically trouble every day is a direct response from frank to watching the watts riots in the 60s so lyrically it's it tackles social injustice racial violence and uh, sensationalist journalism which throughout Frank's career are typically targets that he aimed at a lot. Uh, More Trouble Every Day is p- pretty standard as a blues song, uh, although there are some fun interactions with the band. Um, there's a lyric about, um, you know, the, the police, and you can hear one of the band members kind of do a, like a fake radio voice, like, oh, I got a Niner 49er over here, like, you know, that kind of stuff. So, like, it kind of shows the fun interactions with the band while still being a great piece of music and an excellent piece of satire. Uh, I'm going to play a little bit of more trouble every day, and then we got one more song left, and that'll be the end of this Deep Cut Dive review. So uh, I'll see you on the other side. Well, I'm about to get sick from watching my TV Been checking out the news till my eyeballs fail to see. I mean to say that every day is just another rotten mess, sure enough. And when it's gonna change, my friend, is anybody's guess. So I'm watching and and I'm waiting. Something interesting to note, Frank never considered himself that much of a singer. So whenever he had to do lead vocals, he most of the time would just sort of sing, talk through it. He had about maybe an octave and a half in terms of range, which is why he typically would hire better vocalists than him. But he kind of took the lead on this one, and I think his kind of talk-sing style worked out in his favor. Uh, Before we do the last song, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and thank everybody who's been listening to the show, who's been subscribing, liking us on Facebook, leaving reviews on iTunes. We would absolutely love some more of those. Um, We should have a full episode for you up on the, uh, I believe, the 27th, which is the next Monday. Since we kind of skipped this week with like a full proper episode, I'm going to try and get one. To you guys hopefully by monday maybe later in the week depending on how the edit goes but yeah next week uh we should have a full episode for you and uh yeah so let's let's finish this thing strong the last song on the album is called bebop tango of the old jasmine's church this is a live staple that frank did for a while And on this instance of the recording, he uh, tells the band before the song starts to make sure they get the notes right because this one is a hard one to play. And he is not wrong when you listen to it. Some of the, the time signature is out there. There are very, very quick, like 32nd to 64th note runs. Bruce Fowler just gets a workout on this album. As a trombone player, he's playing just the most notes with that high of a register and I can't even imagine how hard that would be. So th- it starts out as like a, a very, very fast sort of bebop song. Uh, halfway through, um, Frank pulls some people up to the stage and basically has them dance along to the bebop tango. So there's this fun interaction with George Duke and uh, I think it's this this lady who comes on who has been to all of the shows and I think she's a stripper. It, it, Frank's shows, the live shows back in the day have known to be pretty wild and I think this is although there's not video of this performance uh, it's you can kind of feel the atmosphere and feel how fun and uh, improvisational the whole evening is. So I'm going to play a little bit of Bebop Tango and then uh, I'll catch you after that to give some final thoughts some recommendations I suppose and then finish out the episode. So I decided to review this album for two reasons. One, obviously, because it's my favorite album of all time. And two, I think it's a great entry point for someone who's never listened to Frank before. Like, maybe you've heard of him, and he's that weird guy with the funny hair and mustache who does the perverted, funny, gross songs. And I think this is, this is a good entry point for someone yeah who's never heard of the guy before and wants to get the full range of what he has to offer uh it's a live album which as good as studio frank can be there's nothing that beats the live experience of his bands and genre wise he's all over the map he's got a pop song on here he's got some funky riffs he's got the humor he's got the on-stage banter he's got the audience interaction which he became known for it's it's got it all it's a full bag of musical treats i guess uh so i think that's that's probably gonna about do it for this review uh i, I tried to keep it casual and not as formal one because i am not a professional music writer but I, I do enjoy this album quite a bit. And I hope that, you know, I had some stuff to say. Maybe, you know, there's some stuff that you learned and you didn't know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you out with the uh, conclusion of Bebop Tango. And then I will see you guys again on next Monday with a full episode of Something Old, Something New, Something Borrowed, and Something Brewed. See you then.